Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, the other arguably Harrison and Star, Cliff and Bobo. So, how's your walk? Oh, it was rod. It was super stormy. Yeah, yeah, but windy too. Oh yeah, it's like thirty-five knot winds. Wow, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I was love. It. I mean, the stormier the better for me. I, I, I like a steady drizzle or something like that. I hate, but when it's windy and rainy and like real windy, then I got super pumped. Did you get that real nice weather like last week as well? Yeah, we did. It was insane. Went it was to, totally nice. I actually hiked out into that uh, valley where we went the final night investigation for the finding Bigfoot. Didn't hear anything or see anything, but I didn't get that far. You know, just maybe like. I think we walked 1.3 miles and then back. Yeah, that's far enough because you got to go back uphill, you know. Yeah, it's a dude. It's a slog back up. <laughs> Is that bird bumming you out? Uh, most birds bum me out. I'm not a big fan. Can you hear it? Yeah, I can hear it. It's, it's fine. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. I don't care about it. Ambiance. <laughs> Is that a, a bird outside, or do you have a pet bird or something? That's that bird I rescued. Oh God! So you own a bird now? Yeah. Oh, that's good and bad. It's kind of cool, actually. I like I like the guy. He's, he's pretty funny. He's a parakeet. Yeah. Just leave the door open. He flies around whenever he wants. What's his name? Sergio. Sergio. <laughs> I didn't name him. When we got him, his name was Petey. Yeah, that's kind of lackluster name for a parakeet. Right. Yeah, nothing personal. Anybody may have one that calls it that, but Sergio is <laughs> a much better name. It's more original, that's for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Does he does he whistle or talk or do it like mimic you in any way? No, he's dude. He's kind of special ed bird. Yeah. Well, you know, parakeets are kind of right on that edge where, like, if you, I guess if you work real hard, they can whistle similar to you. But you know, they're not going to be talking to you or anything like African greys or something. No, they got they can say up to like eighty words or something. No kidding. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Okay, I just thought that they were kind of on the lower end of the mimicry scale. No, they're just they're just one of the I think they're the hardest to teach, but they they can actually say almost I think 80s average they can get up to like 180. Oh gosh, yeah. Like well, there the you ones go. That, you know, you got some version of a cat woman who's a bird person that's at home all day with it and talks to it all day and really bonds with it. You got to get it young. We got this one who's already old and traumatized. Yeah, yeah. I spoke to this uh, witness this morning who uh, seemed to have filmed a Sasquatch back uh, May 3rd or 5th or something like that. Yeah, I mean, the video's nothing really to write home about, and it's certainly not going to convince anybody, you know, not that I'm trying to convince anybody. But, um, yeah, it's it's hard to figure out exactly how far away it is, um, but I'm going to go there on Sunday, so I'll, I'll have all that information real soon. But, um, but uh, yeah, she watched the thing for like eight or nine minutes and filmed it the entire time. She apparently snapped a couple photographs of it standing up. And then by the time she got her, you know, realized, oh, I should film this, like video it. Uh, it had sat down or stepped down into a, a ravine or something. But you can kind of see what I'm interpreting as the waist up. And it looks, you know, like a Sasquatch would from, you know, 300 yards away. On a cell phone? On a cell phone, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah but I'm going to go down there on Sunday because, you know, it's, it rained pretty good the last couple of days. But there might be some impressions left. Um, that was only, you know, two weeks ago. So I know if I stay here, I definitely won't find prints. But if I make the three-hour drive south, maybe I will. Maybe there's something left because it was – she said that she went over there right afterwards. And she could see, like, where it had been sitting in the grass. Um, you could kind of see the butt print of where it was sitting in the grass and uh, wh- whatever else by some creek or something. So I figured, well, you know, it's private land. I can go, like, creep around on it a little bit and, you know, hope I don't get caught and stuff. And maybe I'll get lucky. So. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I'm actually heading down by Boggy Creek in two weeks. These people have a ongoing situation with a family of squatches, a big alpha male and a female, and then a 
a juvenile, like five and a half, six foot, and then a baby one that's like a little chimpanzee running around crazy, and it gets away from the parents. And unfortunately, he bought like a, the cheapest Walmart game cam you could get, and he put it out, and it was super slow, triggered, and he got some uh, footage of it, but it's so close to the screen. it's kind of, it comes, You can hear the audio on the camera, and it comes up and messes with the camera, and you get one couple frames of the profile, the top of the head. Oh, cool. Yeah, but I'm going down there with, uh, I talked to Derek Randalls from the Olympic Project, and he's going to let me borrow their good therm that Wally got them. It's like a $16,000 unit. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go down there with that, and then hopefully I'm trying to get a ME20. It's one of those nice, I got to rent it. They're expensive to rent, but they're, uh, they're the day-to-night camera in 4K, I mean night-to-day Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. And it looks like it, does, it doesn't turn. It's not like night vision, greenish and black. It's no, it goes color, right? Full, like you, you would know. It just looks like it's, you know, just starting to get dark. Maybe like, like the sun had just gone behind the hill, like that kind of light. Yeah, I remember um, back in Finding Bigfoot days, Chad, the producer, was uh, kind of playing around with getting a couple of those for one of the episodes. It, it never quite panned out or anything, but the technology looked fantastic. Well, we got one. And we used it. Then we got out in the field that night. It didn't work. Remember? Because I, I saw. I got to oh, look through it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I do remember that. Yeah, but but it never made it to screen because it like malfunctioned or something, right? When are you going to go down to Boggy Creek? I'm going to go to Wildman Days, and then from Wildman Days, I'm going to go straight down to there. No kidding, because you know, um, at the where was I? It was just recently. It must have been a Lauren Coleman's International Cryptozoology Conference. Um, I met Pam Pierce. Um, mm-hmm. who is, uh, the guy who did the Boggy Creek film, his, his daughter, um, and Pam was actually one of the people in the film and she has taken it upon herself to, uh, get a, a to digitally remaster the original footage of Boggy Creek. And they're going to show it in Texarkana in the middle of June. They're going to premiere it there with Lyle's going to be there and all that other stuff. So, so you can go check that out. Well, you know what? I'm going to get there, uh, early because there's fingerprints on the window of the trailer where the people live yeah they, they back up to a big bayou or lake or something the high water is pushing up near the near the house and it was standard it put its hand on the window it's a 12 inch it's four 12 inch panes in a four square pattern yeah and its hand covers the whole bottom 12 inch panel and the fingertips on the top so the fingers go up into the next panel up yeah and I'm going to fly into Dallas when Jamie J from Washington's flying down there to see his parents. And he's going to stabilize the prints. And hopefully they're going to let us, I'm going to see if they'll let me take the whole window panes and just replace them and take oh, them back. With me. Yeah, yeah. At the very least, walk away with, uh, you know, fingerprints from that, you know, like look at oh, fingerprints yeah. from it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fingerprint kits are pretty inexpensive. You can get them on even Amazon. They'll arrive at your house the next day. So, yeah, Jamie has a, he said a better technique than that. Oh yeah, he's a cop. He would know. Yeah, it's just you heat up crazy glue like in a um, hot plate, and you, you put like a bag, like a plastic bag over the, over like tape around the outside of the what you want to lift, and then the the melting glue sends up a cloud that sticks to the anywhere there's um, the oil from a hand, like wherever you see, and even the stuff you can't see the eye will still pick it up. Really? Yeah, and then. The little one, when they uh, they leave out treats from them, they get, I guess they go crazy for Cracker Jacks and lollipops. And the, the baby one drops the lollipop sticks right there. So we can get some good DNA, too. So we're going to do some DNA collection. Oh, that's very cool. Awesome. Well, good luck with that. Um, Thanks. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And that's before Wild Man Days. I'm going, like, the day after. The day after Wild Man Days. Okay, cool. Very good. I don't want to. I don't want to have stuff going on and then have to leave for Wildman Days. So I figured if I go on the way back, I can always extend the trip if I have to. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a better choice. And Wildman Days is what the end of June or the beginning of June? I forget. May it's the end of 30th June. Thirtieth through June second. Oh, it's in there. Gotcha. Because yeah, you're right. doing something else. Yeah, I'm doing Eric Altman's campout gig. Um, I he's been trying fine. to get me there for a couple of years. Yeah, it's, it's pretty low key. Um, it, it just sounds like mostly just camping and telling stories, but, um, you know, Dr. Meldrum will be there. Ken Gerhardt will be there about a bunch of other people are going to be there, but, um, yeah, it should be a good time. And I kind of like Southwestern Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And of course, uh, I'm going to actually, I'm going to be filming in Alaska the whole previous week. I've got a, a couple episodes of 
full of work for this uh, TV show that's coming out. And I'm going to go up there and do some stuff up in Alaska for a whole week. And then they're going to fly me directly to Pennsylvania for the weekend to do Eric's gig. So All that right. be, yeah, it should be a pretty fun gig. You know, it's nothing like there's nothing quite like getting paid to go to Alaska to look for monsters. Yeah, I actually got a thing set up to do tours there next summer. Oh, very good. Fantastic. Yeah, by boat. Oh, by boat. Yeah. Well, let me know when you get that going. I can help you put that out there to the, to the peeps, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that because it's going to be expensive. It's going to be way more than a normal expedition. But anyone that's been to Alaska knows if you're going hunting or fishing up there, you're spending like 500 bucks a day. Oh yeah, yeah. My neighbor uh, goes up there for a hunting dash fishing trip every year, and he drops uh, numerous thousands of dollars. And he's gone for about eight or ten days, and you know he comes back with and the fee- the freezer's full for the year. Right. Well, hopefully, yeah. just we're gonna have the just the uh, well, we're gonna fish. It'll be a fishing squatching trip. Oh, cool, cool. And Southeast we'll, Alaska. We'll be going up near Gustav by kind of like yeah, southeast. Okay, cool, awesome, awesome. You want to get your Bigfoot Bobo sort of tours going for at uh, the Bluff Creek area next year, don't you? Oh, I got a couple of private ones this summer that I'm going to put one up. I'm still waiting. I got to finish my website, so I'm going to put up some for later in the year. But I, I'm booked up so much for doing appearances. I got a couple of private expeditions, so I'm going to put up at least one. I know it's kind of getting, sh- you know, it's three months out. That's you know really short notice nowadays. Yeah, it is. It is. Hey, but did you see that uh, news clipping about the? Yeti tracks in the snow, the Indian Army? Yeah, I sure did. A lot of people were sending me that. And uh, it took me a little while to find any photographs of the actual prints. I don't think they're, I don't think they're Yeti prints. Like, what do you I think? Didn't, I didn't think they were either. I think that these guys saw something in the snow and, like they said, it was a Yeti print. And the, the authority of uh, the military kind of swept the story up into the newspapers, you know? I think it's just some sort of smaller animal, you know, fox or whatever, a deer, I don't know, whatever kind of mammals they have over there hopping through the snow. I, in fact, I think personally, I think I'll go out on a limb here, say the majority of so-called Bigfoot snow prints are that, um, something like a fox or something jumping through the snow because that's the easiest way to travel. Because when you look at those footprints from the um, Indian Army situation a week or two ago, um, what you see is like a kind of a jumble, like it's a jumble of smaller sort of impressions that have either been snowed, yeah, snowed upon or melted out in the front and back part of the so-called footprint. And also, what, what were there like 30 something inches long? That's way, yeah, too, yeah. Way, way too big. Yeah. So I, I think that that's a done deal. It's like, yeah, well, it's nice to have Yetis get some press, I suppose. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's Yeti stuff. No, I, I concur wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. But it was, it, was, it was exciting to see that. Like, Indian Army announces they found it. I was like, what? But there's well, there's another even bigger, more substantial Yeti News making uh, article came out. Yeah, the, the Denisovans, right. Which, I, of course, I'm very interested in that, the whole, like, relic hominoid sort of trip. That jawbone was... Well, let's back up a little bit um, for people who are listening and they don't know what Denisovans are. Denisovans are one of our, um, I guess, cousins, for lack of a better term. Um, they kind of they're kind of like a Neanderthal, but uh, but a little bit different. Um, they were we share a common ancestry with them, and they were discovered um, not that long ago. It turns out, and the the discovery came from a tooth that was found in a cave. The uh, the Denisovan cave, which is where the species gets its name, and then they go, oh, "What? This is a new kind of tooth. Didn't know what this was." And they started looking around in the cave a little bit more, and they found a very small finger bone, just a very small piece of a finger bone. There was enough genetic material in it that they did a DNA test on it and discovered that the finger bone and also, therefore, the uh, the tooth came from a new species of Homo, a new species of our our own genus. We're Homo sapiens. Um, Neanderthals would be uh, Homo neanderthalis, and then this would be Homo denisovan. So it's a new species of man or man-like thing that lived on the planet in the same time and place as humans and Neanderthals. And of course, all we had were you know a handful of teeth and bone fragments from that one cave, until um, the publishing of last week's article about this jawbone. That was found in a different cave 
in what Tibet was it Tibet or Nepal? It was Tibet. Tibetan plateau, and it's the yeah. I mean, China claims it as China, so they took it. Well, you know, the Chinese government is a little bit like that. They claim a lot of things are theirs when the people living there might disagree. <laughs> yeah. This discovery is very important because until now, all of our fossils came of the Denisovans came from one place and they were a handful of teeth and some bone fragments. Not really very much to go on. But now that we have a mandible, at least a partial mandible, which is a jawbone, um, we know just a little bit more about it. And sure enough, they seem to be a rather archaic species. And what I mean by archaic is um, kind of uh, primitive, I guess is a good way to say it. Um, for example, they lack a chin. Now, that's a, kind of a big deal because humans have chins, but like the other ape species don't really. They're not really made for that. And I don't know the evolutionary significance of that, but that one indication that they don't have a chin makes them even less human-like. You know, than uh, than than a lot of the other than Neanderthals, for example. I've read two things. I've read that they found it in 1980, but it just sat around for a long time. And I also read they found it in 2010. No, they found it in 1980, actually. Okay. Um, but it had been sitting around all that time, and uh, which is exciting because now the paleoanthropologists are kind of saying, "Well, wait a minute. I bet you we have more samples, and then they're going to go back and look more closely at their uh, data set of fossils." And for us, for us Bigfoot aficionados, that's great because I've thought for a long time that perhaps we have Bigfoot bones sitting around somewhere unidentified. So now that the paleoanthropologists are excited about finding more um, Denisovan fossils in their drawers and, you know, little cubby holes in museums, wherever they keep these things, what if they find other unknown relic hominoids? that have been sitting around as well. What if they find other bones that seem to be man-like, human-like, um, but are too large or whatever? This might be an opportunity, you know, however slim the chances are, of uh, finding Sasquatch bones that might have been lying around for a while. 90,000 years ago, they found a, a Neanderthal bread with a Denisovan. Which is really interesting. And actually something that, in my opinion, probably points to the Denisovans not being like a Yeti or a Sasquatch uh, right. predecessor. Um, and also the problem with, because uh, I know some people have, have said, well, this is this is proof of, of Yeti ancestry and all this other stuff. And I, I don't think I agree with that because uh, we know, or at least we're pretty sure that Denisovans use tools, uh, made and you know, manufactured and used tools. And that seems to be a cultural aspect that is missing from uh, Bigfoot and Yeti reports in general. Wasn't there some speculation that the jawbone from Tibetan Plateau was a high altitude adapted type of Desinovan? That was oh. hair, they said they said it was hair suit, like hairy. Well, they wouldn't be able to tell that from the DNA nor from the mandible. Um, so that would be speculation. But uh, we we do know that um, modern day Tibetans um, have a Denisovan. DNA in them. And it's one of these particular genes that they inherited from the Denisovans that uh, do something to the chemistry of the blood, I guess. You know, one way that people deal with high altitude um, living where, where there's less oxygen is that their blood starts producing more hemoglobin. And I guess there's other ways around it. And apparently the Denisovans have a, had a gene that they passed on to modern day human ancestors that kind of works around this. Because I, I, I read something about if there's too much hemoglobin in your blood, it gets too thick, and that's not really a good thing. But so they have some other adaptation in their genes to work around it. And that is found in modern-day Tibetans and, and people from Bhutan and all of the Tibetan plateau. So we know that Denisovans um, interbred with humans at some point in the past, and they passed that gene on to those particular people. Right. Yeah, because they found that cave was at 10,700 feet. So a lot of people wouldn't realize that because we know from being there we were up that high. For half the year, it's like that really hot, humid air getting pulled up out of the, the Bay of Bengal. But in the winter, it'd be just ice covered. Yeah. I, and do you remember what month we were there? It escaped September. Me. September. Yeah. And, it, and didn't it snow on us one day? There was snow on the ground when we went up to the Pengboche Monastery. Okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The weather up there could be pretty wacky. But at the same time, it's it almost seems tropical in a way. So it's like cold, but tropical. It's a very peculiar place. I've never been quite anywhere like it. 
Yeah, because the Tibetan, the, the Himalayas and Tibetan plateau draws up that moist tropical air, pulls it way up into the high altitude there. It's, it's mm-hmm. pretty unique in the world that way. Yeah. And you know, one of the things when we did go to Nepal to look for the Yeti, one of the things I was looking for while I was there, besides, you know, Yetis, was how similar the environment would be to known Sasquatch habitat. And I found it to be very similar to the Pacific Northwest in a lot of ways, um, particularly in in the with the presence of rhododendrons yep. and ferns. Yeah. In fact, ferns I would say tie together the Bigfoot habitat worldwide better than any other plant species I've seen. Wherever we've looked for Bigfoots, that there are supposedly you know a, a population of them, there are ferns. Well, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the whole. 20 inches of precipitation or more annual, you got the Bigfoot or Yeti reports just spike. Yeah. It's interesting to see the congruency between all these different places and what they all have and what they don't have. Um, they all have, you know, like I say, ferns and rhododendrons for a lot of the places, not necessarily all of them. Like, you know, Brazil, for example, doesn't have rhododendrons, but they have ferns. Um, but they also have a high density of protein, um, easily obtained protein, whether it's deer or hogs or fish or, you know, rats or bunnies yeah. or whatever, you know, whatever yeah, it is. And remember the biggest trees that there were, were rhododendrons. They're like yeah. 40, 50 feet tall. And then they said in the, in the, when the flowers bloom, they're three foot across or like bigger than a trash can lid and they fall on the ground. And if there's like a heavy wind, you can get three, four feet pile, like a carpet of three foot thick rhododendron flowers across the whole forest floor. Huh. That'd have been a sight to see. I wish we would have yeah. gone in. Yeah. That'd have been rad. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that'll always irk me to the end of my days, you know, how um, the production company sent us there during the rainy season, you know, and um, it's, the weather was a little uncooperative and they said, no, no, it's okay. It's at the end of the rainy season. Like that would help. Like, like But it, dude, it's a rainy season. No, no, it's the end of the rainy season. But is it still the rainy season? Yeah, but it's the end of the rainy season. The weather will be fine. And I'm thinking, what what kind of logic is that? You know, it's it's like okay, it's it's four in the morning, it's dark outside. Oh, but it's the end of night. Yeah, you should be able to see fine. It's the end of, but it's still dark. No, it's the end of dark. I remember you told those guys that I was laughing so hard. I was mad too. I'm like, I was laughing at laughing at them because I was like, once again, that production company, penny wise, pound foolish, idiots. They tried to save money by having us go then because it was off season. Then we got grounded. The helicopters they had to spend seventy thousand extra dollars on helicopters just sitting on the ground. Yeah, well, we were sitting in the Kathmandu airport for three days. That was hell. That that was not the nicest airport I've been to. Raw sewage flowing across the floor. Ah, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was like LAX or something. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was worse than any, that was the worst airport. I mean, especially for an international airport, that was unbelievably bad. That's where I got the food poisoning too. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of option there, you know, for for healthy foods or. And when I say healthy, all I mean is like like minimal microbes. Right. You know, I don't mean salads. I just mean things without giardia. Right, right. <laughs> you know, Cliff, I was you know talk about the Yeti. I was looking at the photo. You know, I've always loved that Shipton photo from 1951. The the first photo of a Bigfoot Yeti type of thing that went worldwide when, and I always thought for sure that definitely 100% had to be a Yeti track. But now looking at some of that, uh, Meldrum's study on the, the bear, well, actually the other guy Taylor did it in like 1983, he went over there and did a six month expedition and found those tree bears. They, they said they had ground bears and tree bears and the tree bears spent the majority of their time up in the trees. The tree bears were just juvenile Asian black bears that got sent off by their mom and they're on their own. So the first year or two, they're on their own. The adult ground bears, which were just, you know, big Asiatic black bears, would attack and kill and feed on what they called the tree bear, the juvenile black bear. So they adapted their, the inside claw would actually abduct for like a, like a hand so it could grasp the trees better. And when they walked on the ground, it would, meet, it would leave like a, like a hallux, like a big toe kind of off to the side like a, like a primate. Have you seen samples of that, like photographs of prints like that in the in the ground or a cast or anything? I'd never yeah. heard of that before. Oh, yeah. I saw I saw a couple pictures of it, but um, he tried to write that off as all, explaining all the Yeti tracks. But if they're tree bears, and they're finding these prints of it 17 and 21,000 feet, there's no trees up there. 
Yeah, yeah, sh- that's true. That's true. But the, you know, there's probably very few Yetis up there as well. They would have, like the Bears, they would probably just be passing over the saddles into the next valley where all the food would be. We're not going to get the reports because hey, there's hardly any people up there, and they all stay to those same trails. Mm-hmm. But we even in spite of that, there's way. I mean, we covered a good little part of that country. You know, the the valley there where most of the sightings are. And it's so rare to find a witness. Whereas if you go up to a Native American reservation here, 90% or 80% of the people have seen one, you know. But you go over there and it's, you got to look around to find an eyewitness for a Yeti. I mean, you're talking to Sherpa communities. We, we talked to dozens of, uh, of different uh, Sherpa village community people, and we only found a handful of witnesses. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, a lot of the folks up there are just kind of steeped in superstition and all that stuff, too. So then you get this blending of mythology and religion and fear and superstition and biology that's really hard to kind of wade through and, and sort out, you know? I'll not say it like a negative way, but they are primitive. I mean, the guy tried to cure my leg by spitting on it. Yeah, yeah, and God, if if you know, if spitting on things made things healthy, I would have <laughs> never got sick when as a child. You know, all, <laughs> right. the, all the bullies would have kept me like very, very well. Well, remember the the monks when we were going to use them for the final overnight? They had to put it off a day because they were hired to go drive out the flu out of that house. And they went there to chase away the bad spirits. And they, the monks would go outside and bang cymbals and pound drums and yell and chant and drive away the evil spirits. So the flu would, and it was just the flu. Yeah, it's a different sort of mindset up there. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying they're wrong, um, but I will say it's not exactly scientifically proven that they're right. I would have I would have bet my money, my last dollar on if the locals, all the Sherpas there all said that the tree bear and the ground bear were separate species, then I would have said, and then if some, you know, white guy came there and said, no, no, they're the same thing, I'd be like, dude, you're crazy. They, these guys know they live with them for thousands of years, but sure enough, they were wrong. Well, it would it be the same species that um, just behaves in a, the two different ways? Is that the deal then? It's just the age thing. When they get big enough so they can defend themselves, they come out of the trees and then live on the ground full time. They get up about 400 pounds. But when they're in that juvenile stage up in the trees, they're like, you know, 160 to 220, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. What also threw them up was they brought back a skull of a tree bear in the, in the 1930s. And that's why... Uh, science went along with them being a separate species for so long until Taylor proved it later on that you no, know, these are the same, the same species. Just when they're in that juvenile stage, the toe actually, you know, the claw and toe bends out and makes like a, a grappling, a grap, you know, something to grasp with like a hand. Like you, I would tend to side with the Aboriginal knowledge, essentially. You know, the indigenous people who live in the area tend to know what lives there with them. Um, I think it's usually a safe bet, but you know, if they're seeing two different behaviors from two different sized bears, I can easily see how they would say, no, those are two different types, um, because they don't really have the opportunity to follow an individual bear for its eight or 12 year lifespan or 20 year lifespan, however long they live, um, to see the difference differences in behaviors, um, which kind of begs the question of yowies and brown jacks down in Australia. I was just going to say that. You know, I've heard people say, oh, there's a big one and a small one in America. So, well, how do you know you just didn't see a juvenile or whatever? And I asked that same question in Australia. But again, the the Aboriginal people there were confident that they were two different things. And I'm not, you know, they very well could be, especially with the prevalence of both large and small hairy hominoids all throughout Indonesia. The hobbit species, the ibogogo, the newly found um, Homo luzonensis in the Philippines, that that kind of points to a very real possibility of there being smaller ones and bigger ones. But until we get a little bit more evidence, we're just not going to know. Dude, I, I am convinced. I, I went with those Aboriginals. I got to. Uh, I went to Australia a couple weeks before the Finding Bigfoot crew did. And I went uh, hiking to this spot where they said the brown jacks came at them one time. And we went way out there. And on the way up, you have to go through the Yowie section. And then you go climb up these, like we had a like, straight up climb up these sides of these waterfalls. It was gnarly. You know, it went up a couple hundred meters, then on a plateau. And there's, I mean, this place was out in the middle of nowhere. And on the way up, we heard a huge tree snap. And there was a five-inch, um, I forget what kind of it was, a hardwood just snapped over laying across the creek where we were, we were walking up a creek to get up there, you know, full of leeches and all that. 
it was beautiful, but man, those, those guys were so scared. And remember that uh, one witness, the white guy that his, all his sheep were torn apart and thrown up in the tree. Oh yeah. That was creepy. Yeah. It was, I was with him and uh, the Aboriginal guys. And they were telling me about how the Brown Jacks attacked them coming down that Creek one time. It was a pack of them they'd, and they'd come through the trees and they're super fast and aggressive. And the, um, God, I can't remember. I forgot his name. He's a totally cool guy, but it snaps. One of them just swung down, snatched the sunglasses that were sitting on top of his head. And like the nails dragged across his scalp and, you know, tore skin off. He had a, you know, kind of bloody scratches down the top of his head. And they, they were, they were definitely more scared of the Brown Jacks than they are of the, the, um, Yetis. And, and it's, it's kind of interesting too. when you hear about the, uh, there was that Christian missionary up in the York Peninsula of Northern Australia, way up there on the tip where it's mm -hmm. super hot and tropical. Well, he had a report of, um, I can't remember what they call them up there. They're, they sound like homo uh, floresiensis. He basically described those things and he said they were super aggressive, mean, and they carried pointy sticks and they'd all band together real tight and jab right in and threaten you with their, their uh, sharpened sticks like little spears. Yeah, and, that jibes well with what we know about Homo floresiensis being little guys that uh, you know, made and used tools. So that that would make perfect sense with something like that. Yeah, remember we did the night where they, they came out and did a dance for us? Mm hmm The mm -hmm. Aboriginals. Were you there later on when they took out the, the thermal and they ran into a brown jack, came running back into camp, scared out of their minds? I'd, I was there. Yeah, I was there. And I, we went there and the, there were too many footprints from people just in general to know if anything had been there or not. But they all said there was um, a couple a multiple witness sighting happened with a thermal imager that very same night. Yeah. And the bummer was it wasn't recording because they just handed it to him to go look around. We weren't thinking of film, like filming something. It was just like, hey, you know, yeah, you want to look at this? This is what a thermal imager looks like. And they just walked out towards the beach. And they came, and these guys are big, macho guys. They come, like, they were literally running and, tr like, tripping on each other and, like, falling down, scrambling back to their feet and just run and ran right into the house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, it, was, it was impressive to see the guys' reactions to uh, whatever they observed. Yeah, I turned around for, like, 45 minutes and didn't see anything. But yeah, that, that makes perfect sense that uh that there would be two, like a smaller one and a bigger one down there. Um certainly there's evidence for that. And were you that you were there that day when we were shown footprints that uh that guy was saying those were brown jack footprints, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I and if they are brown jack footprints, I can't tell because they looked like humans to me. And of course it's complicated down there because the Aboriginal people don't wear shoes unless they go into town. And so they're tromping around in the brush, you know, and in, in the bush, as they call it, um, snakes or not, they don't care at all. They have, they have no F's to give, man. They're out there poking around and things barefoot all the time. So they, if, they don't even, they don't even own shoes. Some of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe they were brown jack footprints, but it looked to me like they had an arch, which points probably to humans because, you know, we, I guess we don't really have good examples of solid brown jack footprints, but I would be inclined to think that they have flexible midfoot, just like uh, most of the other hominin species. You know, most of those kind of settings of brown jacks and stuff are from the Aboriginal communities, but I know that they're up in the York Peninsula that they totally describe the Homo floresiensis. I mean, exactly. And, and uh, did they think, uh, well, because the ones up there that they're described as hair covered and brown jacks are obviously hair covered. The, what are the uh, what are the what what are the scientists that have been studying up in Flores? What are they? Do they think they were hair covered too? You see, we have no information on that because hair doesn't really fossilize. I mean, sometimes in very rare circumstances, hair or feathers or something might make an imprint in the you know the sand or mud or whatever that the thing's lying in, and we can gain some sort of secondhand indirect knowledge of it. But uh, it, as far as I know, there's no evidence of hair covering really with pretty much any hominin species. I know there's even a, a debate whether or not Homo erectus is covered in hair. We just, or, or Neanderthal, for example. We, we always assume that Neanderthals are not covered in hair. But there's this, there's this book out called Them and Us, right. um, which is an interesting book. I, I don't necessarily agree with it, but it's an interesting read that kind of speculates that um, Neanderthals were um, hair-covered, nocturnal super predators that humans had to adjust their lifestyle to accommodate to not being wiped out by these things. Um, 
But again, hair covering on even Neanderthals is a point of dispute. It's a, you know, is controversial. We don't know. Um, however, some evidence exists in the, in the, um, in the form of present day sightings and stories from the island of the locally known small uh, hairy hominid, the, the uh, Ibu Gogo is what right. they call them. The Noajes people call the Ibu Gogo, two different words. And they say that these things are about three feet tall and more or less covered in, in hair. Now, we don't know if it's like ape-like or if it's just like a, you know, really hairy dude-like, but hair covered nonetheless. So um, I'm inclined to think that they perhaps were. It makes sense, you know, to have some sort of protective covering, not necessarily for warmth or anything like that, although they are small animals and they would radiate their heat out to the environment pretty quickly. But um, just from the things that would bite them and want to, you know, eat them and poke them and all do all that sort of stuff, you know, leeches and bugs and parasites and whatever else. So, Right, right. Yeah, but the Ibugogo are supposedly hair covered, so I'm inclined to think that, well, I think it's a strong one-to-one correlation that Ibugogo are certainly relic Homo floresiensis, you know, if they're still around. Um, and since one was covered, the other one probably was also hair covered. According to the aboriginals, they were seafaring folk before the aboriginals, and they got there before them. Well, I suppose it's possible, uh, but when you say seafaring, you know, that kind of brings to mind, you know, uh, like building rafts and navigating and using the sun and all that sort of stuff to, you know, like the Polynesians did. And I don't know, of course, but I, I kind of picture it more like um, more like the, in the way that lizards cross the ocean kind of accidentally, you know, um, storms or near drownings and they grab some sort of like raft of, you know, reeds and stuff and just luck out one day and get washed up on it on the next island it's possible that they're doing the other opposite i just remember them saying i know i know for sure the aboriginals in fact, i got to talk with some really high-ranking ones traditional ones and so they said the yai was there when they got there when the first aboriginals got there they were there and so were the little brown jacks and the brown they said the brown jacks were more were like in the human strain and the the yai was a definite animal but the, they said that the the little guys, brown jacks, came by by uh, sailing canoe. Yeah, who knows? Maybe, maybe that's possible. I don't know. I don't know. I guess it, how much uh, technology was infused into uh, you know Homo floresiensis or whatever these things might may have been. You know, right? Which of course we haven't even mentioned this yet. Um, the the recent and I, when I say recent, within the last month, the recent discovery of another known species of homo um, from the Indonesian islands. Um, in this case, it was the Philippines, um, a brand new species of human called Homo luzonensis, um, which again is probably is a, is a small sort of one like Homo floresiensis. We, uh, the paleoanthropologists there unearth a, a handful of bones. We know a little bit more about them than, um, than some of the other species of Homo that have been Un, you know, unburied elsewhere. But um, I kind of have to wonder, though, they're so close to one another and uh, they're both relatively recent. Maybe they're the same species and we just don't have enough information yet. And maybe Homo floresiensis was more widespread than than we would guess. Or being isolated on these various islands for tens of thousands of years or more, maybe they have developed new species characteristics and Luzonensis is a different species than Homo floresiensis. I don't know. There's so much to learn. This, this is one of the most exciting times to be interested in paleoanthropology and therefore Bigfoot and you know other hairy things like that. Um, this is the most exciting time to be alive with all these uh, discoveries happening literally every couple of years. A new yeah. member of our family gets discovered. The jaw and teeth they found up in Tibet, weren't those teeth much bigger than a modern human's? Um, the teeth were large, but I don't know if that's in proportion to the jaw or if that's just sheer size. Right. Yeah. Now, it had a, a larger jaw um, and large teeth, which would give us insight into its diet more than anything. You know, just like, a, you know, Paranthropus boisei, we know a little bit about their diet. In fact, they call them, uh, wasn't it Nutcracker Man for a while? Because the teeth were so large, they assumed that they were cracking nuts with them. Yeah, so you, we can learn a little bit about the diets of those things and things like Sasquatches just by looking at the jaws and mandibles and the size proportions of various parts of the skull, which is super interesting when you compare like a Paranthropus boisei skull to, a, to the Patterson-Gimlin film, um, her head 
um, you see a lot of similarities, which gives us a little bit of insight about how she uses her head and various parts of it, you know, like her jaws and teeth and whatnot. A really cool thing about this recent discovery of Homo luzonensis being on the Philippines is that the Philippines has a history of hairy hominoids, of, of Sasquatch-like animals that are there. Um, they call them the Capre, K-A-P-R-E. Um, and over the years, I've actually taken two sighting reports from witnesses, uh, American witnesses that were stationed on military bases in the Philippines who had seen these things. You know, some sort of light or dark covered ape um, running around on two legs near the bases. Um, and these, the ones that I took were large. If I remember right, one was about seven feet tall. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. But um, all right, well, maybe this is another thing like, you know, Australia, where there's a large and a small version running around on the same island. Yeah, I, this girl I was dating, a Filipina girl, her family is still living down there, most of them. And they had them come into, the, they'd come into their houses, like these kind of thatched hut things. And they actually, the whole family saw one snuck in the middle of the night. And it wasn't that, it, well, they're tiny people. They're like, you know, five foot tall around. And this thing was, they said it was big, you know, six foot, but it was hair covered. But they said whenever it came in and raided the, the village for food, they swam in and came right up in the little bay cove thing and go on land. Then when they got seen and they ran away, they'd dive back in the ocean and swim away. No kidding. Like sea, sea going kind of in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, by the way, Luzon is a, is a big island in the Philippines. It is a northern island, and it's the oh, same it island where, they're, uh, where Manila is, the capital. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, you'd think they'd be on a bigger island. Yeah, yeah. A few years ago, um, there was a mandible, a jawbone, that was dredged up by fishermen. They looked at this thing and they said, what is this? I've never seen one of these things before. And um, at first it was misidentified as a gigantopithecus jaw, which I found very interesting. And now they're looking back at it wondering what it is exactly. And they still don't really know. Some people are saying Homo erectus. Some people say Denisovan. They, they don't really know still from my understanding of it, at least. Yeah, this is back in see a fossilized jawbone discovered in Ta by Taiwanese fishermen, about 200,000 years old, and they don't know what the heck it is. Uh, a, a clearly different than all the other known homo populations. They, oh, yeah. So they're thinking this thing might be a homo erectus of some sort. But initially, when it first came up, the news items were that this thing might be a gigantopithecus jaw, which I found pretty interesting um, because obviously that would indicate some size to it as well as the dentation. The teeth would be really large in it as well. So that's down in the same general area off, off of Taiwan. That's right there by the Philippines. So, and that was from the, from the water, from the bottom of the ocean. Well, that indicates some sort of uh, a land bridge at some time. And it, it just starts all making sense that these things wandered through Southeast Asia over some sort of land bridge like they did in North America and ended up populating the islands all throughout Indonesia. Yeah. Have you, have you had a chance to read that book by Gregory Forth? No. Which one is that? Images of the Southeast Asian wild man. No, I have not read that one. You, you need to get it, man. It's, it's an expensive book now. It was only in publication. Um, it was only being published for a short time. But uh, it, it's, in my opinion, by far the best book about Southeast Asian wild men sort of things in existence. This guy is a, an anthropologist, and he has been spending a lot of time specifically on Flores um, talking to the native people there about and, and gathering stories, gathering folklore about these hairy sort of things that live all throughout Indonesia. And he has dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of stories of these things. And suddenly, uh, he, he's writing the, he was writing this book in the early 2000s. Suddenly, all these discoveries of new species are popping up from the very islands he's, he's studying. It's fantastic. And he goes into, it's probably the best book on, on, on Orang Pendek, that I've ever read, even though it's not specifically on the Orang Pendek. Um, it's the only book that really details anything about the Ibogogo. It's the only book I've found that ever uh, went into things like uh, what's going on in Sulawesi um, mm -hmm. or all these other islands. He goes into Papua New Guinea and what's been seen there. He, he touches on the Australian Yaoi. Uh, he touches on uh, the, the, you know, the Chinese wild man and what's going on in Vietnam. He touches on all these things, but his main area of focus is exactly where we're talking about, the Indonesian islands, the Philippines, all that area there. And it's See, that, fantastic. That book's rare because I, I got a big book collection and I don't even have that one. 
Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And th- this guy, li- I think he teaches up in Canada somewhere, maybe in Alberta or somewhere. But yeah, Gregory Fourth is the guy's name, and uh, the book is more or less, you know, images of the Southeast Asian wild man. Um, and it is number one on my list for, you know, non-American Bigfoot stuff. Right. You know Dmitry Bayanov, the famous Russian hominologist? Of course, yeah. Yeah. Well, I spent some time with him, spent a week with him one time, then a few days another time. And he told me that he'd got hold of some journals that when Peter Byrne stole the Peng Boche finger and thumb from the skeleton hand, yeah, that Jimmy Stewart, when Jimmy Stewart and his wife snuck it out in her underwear to yeah. get it out of the country, out of India, that he switched it back out again, that he bought a cadaver uh, hand and took that thumb and forefinger and brought that to the scientists in England. And that that's why they said, oh, it's just a human. It's because he switched them out. That he also bought the Minnesota Iceman from Frank Hansen and had it destroyed. And he had the, he was buying up uh, anything that was related to Bigfoot or Yeti because he thought it was going to prove evolution. And if that happened, that people wouldn't believe in God anymore. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I, I read something else about the Pengboche hand. Like, because we know that the thumb bone was lost for many decades and they, it was, I think, rediscovered in the 1990s or 2000s. And then they did a DNA test on it because, you know, the, the rumors of it being Yeti and all that sort of stuff. And then the, the DNA came back human. But there's a second chapter that I, that I heard, and I, I can't, I don't, I'm not sure if this is verifiable or not, but um, certainly somebody listening might want to go check and email us about it. From what I understand is that uh, upon closer look, that human DNA turned out to be Peter Burns' DNA. So Peter just contaminated it when he got it or something like that. Now, that would be very interesting to take a look at to see if, that, if, if my recollection is correct or if, if it's true at all for that matter. Because if it is Peter Burns' DNA, then perhaps uh, that bone should be looked at again and a little bit more closely. Yeah, and I also... Were you there when we were talking, uh, what's her name? Shanta was translating, talking to the old monk. And he said that uh, when Peter Byrne, because he was there when Peter Byrne came there, he was he was that 100-year-old monk there. Yeah, I remember that guy. Yeah, and he said when Peter Byrne came, he was insistent and like really pushy and come back saying, I need samples, I need samples, I need to take some of your Yeti scalp. And that they switched out the scalp with that goat, the goat skin, and wrapped that around the uh, whatever that piece of wood it was on, and they said that they hid the real Yeti scalp uh, a couple of villages away in a different monastery. I didn't hear that actually, but I, I, there are several Yeti scalps, you know, so-called Yeti scalps in various monasteries all throughout the area. Well, I know most of those are BS because they said that they were just jealous of the Peng Boche because the Peng Boche had the real stuff. Mm. So, th- so okay. those guys, those guys, that's why they. Had they theirs were just like goral. I think they, they said it's a goral, like a goat deer cross thing. Yeah, like something like was Sorel or something. I forget what it is, but yeah, some sort of goat thing up that they have up there. Yeah. So I mean, and when you saw that when they did that 3D reconstruction of the of the of the Ping Boche hand, I mean, it, I got a big hand and it dwarfed my hand, and what the phalanges were flat on top like a gorilla. Yeah, and but then again, that was all done by photographs by the guys at Weta Workshops who did the the special effects for Lord of the Rings and all that stuff, because the original hand was stolen back in the early 90s, um, along with the scalp. And, of course, that's how the the monasteries make their money. People who are hiking through give a couple bucks um, and to be blessed or to be, you know, to to get to see the hand or whatever first, you know, firsthand, no pun intended. Um, And it was stolen, unfortunately, and that kind of robbed the Pangboche Monastery of a way to make a living. So that word got out to um, some guys at Weta Workshops, and they went to – they put in the work to make a replica of the hand based on photographs. Now, the photographs that I've seen of the Pangboche hand indicate that it was probably smaller than that. It looked like it was maybe human size or slightly larger, whereas the one – the replica they have now is quite a bit bigger than human hand. Yeah, and to this day, the Yeti hand is still missing. There's a there's a website by um, oh I can't remember his name, but that's pretty typical of me. I don't remember people's names very well, but this extremely rich dude who uh, made a bunch of money, I think, in technology or something like that, and he has a website devoted to lost treasures of the world, 
And um, he's got a whole page on the paying Bolche hand. And he's the kind of guy that's like basically saying, yeah, this thing's out there somewhere on the black market. If you know where it is, here's my contact information. You tell me I will fly anywhere in the world and your name will never be known. No one will press charges and then get the treasure back and make sure it goes back to the rightful owner. That's what I do if I was rich. Yeah. So as, as far as the Yeti goes, Bobo, you, I think you have a, a distinct honor in the Bigfoot community is in that um, you, you, as to my knowledge, are the only person I'm aware of, at least, that has ever possibly heard a Yeti vocalize. No, I think I'm the only person that's ever heard a Yeti, a Yowie, and a Bigfoot. Oh, all three. It's a trifecta. Yeah, because you were with me when we heard the Yeti, I mean the Yowie. Yeah, in, absolutely in Australia. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, because remember when we went around in Nepal, when we'd ask people that heard him, like the old monk and a couple of the Sherpas that had run into him in the hunter. Yeah. He said he made a call like, like this woo, kind of the whistle tone kind of to it a little bit. Yeah, and yeah. They described all the same sort of sounds. That was very interesting. The consistency was very compelling. Yeah. And then um, when I went on my solo camp trip in the Himalayas, we hiked up to that lake. It was really just like a pond, big pond. And it's full of frogs, and the Yetis come up there and feed on the frogs. So we we hiked up into there. For $2, I paid for an old uh, gasoline diesel can that had some moonshine, like rice moonshine in it. And was it wasn't the diesel itself anymore? Are you sure? I tasted that stuff. You could go either way. It definitely still tasted like diesel. It smelled <laughs> like diesel, and it tasted like diesel. But, man, it hit you like Everclear Deep. or something. It hit you like diesel? Yeah. Yeah, because I was thinking, because what, what, all we heard up there was that they're so rare, you're never going to encounter one. You're never going to encounter one. Like, these Sherpas have been in these mountains their whole life. But I do remember when we hiked up there, these guys hauled butt to get there before it got dark. They were they were petrified to be on the trails after dark when they were, knew they were in a Yeti area or anywhere in general. They didn't like being, when they, when they did walk at night, they made a lot of noise so they wouldn't surprise one. Or Plus, there's you know, grizzly bears running around up there also. We're up in the Himalayas, and the Sherpas were so cool and just beautiful people, just so fun and love to have a good time. And so they started, come on, Bobo, you know, drink it, drink it. So I drank some, and yeah, I got a little bit buzzed. And they, we were doing Sherpa dances, and I was teaching those guys how to do Bigfoot calls, and they were trying to do Bigfoot calls. And we're, we're, in this, we're on this, you know, it's the Himalayas. There's not, like, people around. You know, like, it's not like there's a campsite below you, maybe, like, you know, in North America, everyone's like, how do you know it was another camper just calling back to you or a backpacker? Well, out here, there was, they, they're, they're the Sherpas. They know who's out there. There's no, vi- there's no village anywhere near there. And when you see it in the daylight, how steep and rugged it down it is, that canyon, we start getting these calls coming back. And we were like, no way. And I had the auto recorder with a, a para- small parabolic dish, perfect to record it. As soon as we ran back into the tent, the skies, all of a sudden there was just cracks of lightning. And within, literally within 30 seconds, the heaviest rainfall I'd ever seen, it rained 15 inches in three hours. Wow. It was crazy. And it just dumped. And it was so loud. And we could still hear, We could when you stuck your head out of the tent, you could hear it. You could hear it coming up the hill. And it came up and it went to the left, to the left of us, to the south of us. It, we heard it, it vocalized several times coming up the ridge. Got next to us, vocalized once more. They got ready, uh, it made a different noise when it got above us where it could see us from the rocks. And it was close. I mean, 50 yards, uh, 70 yards at the most. And then it kept going. But the path it took up, it was totally visible. If it hadn't started pouring rain, we could have thermed it and got good audio. But it was just like squatcher's luck. Yeti luck is even worse. I mean, it, was, it could have been worse timing. And, and previous to that day, when we first got up there, there was some, because uh, the Sherpas, you know, are Buddhists, and they've been there forever. And India, as everyone knows, is super overpopulated and desperately poor, like the untouchable lower caste and stuff. Well, they, like how we get people from, you know, south of the border um, migrating up and crossing into the uh, United States, they have the same thing that Nepal has uh, with Indians. And the Indians recently have been making, in the last, 10 years of making a big push up into the Himalayas on the trekking routes, putting up their own villages. Cause basically they put up like little mini seven 11s out there. You know, yeah. it's like you can buy cigarettes, uh, 
what's that what's that moss stuff for your feet for blisters uh, like moleskin yeah moleskin moleskin and snickers bars and stuff like that and and acid you know it's just small but so the, the sherpas have those little you saw those little tiny markers like well the indians were putting in bigger stores and getting they'd, they'd haul out like beer and stuff like that so they were trying to take over business from the the buddhist guys and they'd spent three years building by hand a trail up to this village they started and they were trying to get the trekkers to go off off the main route that the sherpas have been using forever and the, all the tourists take they're trying to get the tourists to come to their better more well-stocked store but it was off the main route so they hand dug this trail on the side of the mountains and i mean it's the freaking himalayas it's it's insane it's so rugged and steep and it's just it's all it's all rock so they with chisels and and then it, well it wasn't all rock there was uh soil there, on certain parts of was soil but the parts where they dug out and laid rock in all that washed out in that flood and like i was saying that day there were some cattle herders up there the indian guys tried to get me to leave because they said i was disrespecting there was a buddhist temple up there that they let the Buddhists, the Buddhists are totally cool. Like they let the Indians do their Hindu religious uh, ceremonies at their temples. They, they can just walk in and use it whenever they want. But if the Buddhists aren't doing their ceremony, then they come in and they, they let them just use them. So they had, uh, the Indians had taken over this shrine and they were telling me to leave because I was disrespectful, but they, these guys just dropped their trash everywhere. The cows were pooping in the, in the pond. You could the humans couldn't use it anymore. Prior prior to those, the Indians bringing cattle in there, it was just a wild pond. And anyway, you go there and drink, no problem. Swimming it now it's filthy, and there was just trash like beer bottles and all this all over the place. So I said, dude, I'm not leaving. And these tiny little dudes going, get out of here, get out of here. I was like, no, I'm not leaving. Beat it. So then I then I heard that yeti that night. So I sent word back to the, the camp. To you guys, hey, the, the uh, Yeti's here. Get up here, get up here. When you guys came back, you can tell the story from there, Cliff. Well, when we got out there, uh, by the time we arrived, there was already some sort of altercation going on between the two parties, basically. You know, some people were pretty pissed that uh, you guys were still there. And then, like, the monks were saying, no, no, that's our land. They can be here if you want. Um, yeah, they were not very happy with you for having caused that flood. Uh, yeah, I think, well, it was a god. It was a goddess. Yeah, well, you know, you're I, you're a goddess to some people. No, they were pointing. <laughs> the Indians were pointing at me, going, "He angered the goddess, whatever her name was. I can't remember. Her, I wish I remembered the name. He disrespected her, and he refused. And it's his fault. Our village lost the trail. It took us three years to build that. Now we have to spend three more years. He and they wanted to kill me. Remember, they had like homemade guns and a sword and clubs yeah. and knives and machetes and and the and the monks. They're, you know, they're, they're pretty past, they're pacifists, but they are, they're trained Shaolin, like they're, they're martial artists. So they, yeah, they, they didn't seem like pacifists to me, man. They look like they're no, ready to brawl. No, they were totally ready to brawl. Then Moneymaker grabbed his walking sticks, those, those like a uh, ski pole things he'd carry around them. Yeah. And he, he's like, he, he went in there and started stirring stuff up. I just remember Steve and Chad grabbing him and dragging him away. Cause he was, he was getting the pot ready to boil yeah yeah it it got diffused well mahindra got diffused because he was he's an authoritarian you know like they all they could tell he was a big boss man he's he's the head of the trekking association which every sherpa belongs to it's an economic powerhouse that guy holds a lot of power yeah he was he was basically like a mafia guy yeah and he called in uh he started screaming and yelling and he had a satellite phone and he called in the army the army came in arrested like what 15 of those guys yeah but it took them like seven hours to get there mind you because there's right. no roads they had to walk up there to do it and then they they held so them they in jail oh they helicoptered so them heli- in all right yeah they helicoptered them in and they hel- helicoptered those guys back to the jail and we found out they're going to do three years in jail yeah just for kind of being dicks you know and we were like no no don't don't please don't please don't hold them in for for three for three years like we'd feel terrible like we didn't want that so Mahindra calls him then we talked to Mahindra that he goes don't worry about it we uh, got it all settled out they're gonna stay for two weeks get their feet caned or i think they already had their feet caned they're gonna do two weeks in jail then have to walk back on split open feet Ugh. yeah it's a different justice system over there 
Yeah, but I know when we showed up, there was a lot of contention going on, and somehow or another, we convinced them. I think we bribed them, honestly. We convinced them to let us uh, film for a bit, and then when we were done filming that one thing that they supposedly allowed us to film, they started being jerks again, and we we kind of just took off. And um, it's that was an interesting night because they knew we were nearby, so they kept yelling and banging their swords together, their machetes and whatnot, and shooting shooting blindly off into the dark in our general direction with their homemade zip guns. That was a sketchy night, man. Like our, our lives were literally in jeopardy to some degree that night um, because of these jerks who were possessive about their pond. They're mad at you for causing a flood. Yep. I angered the goddess. Well, yeah, that's kind of nice to be elevated to demigod status every once in a while. That's two continents of angered goddesses. <laughs> I'm just Bobo. You've been to five. I would bet all five. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> uh, that's crazy when I tell people, like, like, where'd you go on the show? I'm like, we went to five continents. Yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. You know, speaking of Yetis, I do love my Yeti microphone, Cliff. Yeah, I'm loving this thing too. We do, of course, we do this over Skype, you know, because so we're, li we're a little limited on what on the audio quality that Skype can offer us. But it's the best it's going to get because of these, you know, the Yeti microphones. Yeah, I love it. It's just kind of ironic, you know, that we're doing a podcast on strange phenomena, hairy hominids, and the actual mic is called Yeti, and it's the best you can get. Yeah, but yeah, and again, we're not sponsored by Yeti. We don't get any money from them or anything like that for all you guys listening. Um, they did hook us up with some free mics, so we're just stoked on that. And just as a thank you, we just want to say, yeah, thanks, Blue Microphones. Uh, that We love the Yeti mics. They work great. Well, Bobo, that was a pretty wide-ranging conversation. Um, I'm not sure if there was any theme along the way except for various hominoids worldwide, but it sure was fun. It was, you know, South Pacific Asia-based. Yeah, yeah, we got some Yeti in there. We got some Rang Pendek and Ibogogo and Yowie and Brown Jack and some new findings in paleoanthropology. Yeah, it's fairly wide-ranging, I'd say, but all under the Bigfoot canopy. I've always had trouble focusing yeah, me too. But you know what? I have a feeling that our listeners don't really care. They're just coming along for the ride, enjoying our conversation, trying to learn a few things, and you know, mostly having fun, just like we are. Well, yeah, because I definitely every time I talk to you, Cliff, I learn something. Oh well, well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, what do you got going for the rest of the day here? Like anything else going on the ne next week or so? Well, I'm going to camp this weekend up oh, cool. by Bluff Creek area for about just two nights. Go out Friday, come back Sunday. Yeah. Got the therm going, some audio, so see what we can get. That's cool. Very good. You see this, uh, I'm playing some music on Friday, which is kind of cool. And Saturday, uh, I'm going to go out and do a workshop with uh, the, the boat pilots on spirit mm. boat cruises here in Portland. You know, because I'm working with the spirit boat guys to get their Bigfoot tour together. Um, and so I'm going to go out and do a workshop on Bigfoot with the boat skippers. So if they get asked questions, perhaps they can remember an answer or, you know, kind of go over what we're actually doing out there. And then a week from Friday, I get to go take the test run of the boat of the Bigfoot boat tour. It's going to be pretty exciting. Well, what they're going to do, what they're going to record you giving a tour and then play it for the tourists that come on out like the rest of the summer. Yeah. Basically there's this book, there's this boat um, run by spirit boat tours in Portland, Oregon called the Explorer. And uh, they wanted to turn that boat into a Bigfoot themed trip. And it launches out of downtown Portland, heads North into the Columbia river, hangs a right, goes East through Bonneville dam. You get to go through all the locks and everything. And then they let you out at a restaurant in cascade locks for an hour and a half, eat lunch, you get a beer, whatever you want to do. Then you get back in the boat and you go back to downtown Portland. It's about a four or five hour trip, if I understand correctly. And um, along the way, there's, you know, you've been to the Columbia River Gorge. It's a tremendous vista. Where, where, wherever you look, there's something beautiful. Um, oh, it's, it's rad. Yeah, it's one of the most magnificent landscapes you can possibly imagine. So they've already had this tour for years, right? Um, you know, where they talk about the formation of Beacon Rock or they talk about Rooster Rock or the Crown Point building or it's basically a tourism sort of thing, you know, it's goes see the sites in one of the most beautiful places in the world and experience the, the locks at the dam and all that jazz. Well, added on to that tour that was already fun and successful and enjoyable and in informative, added on to that now is this whole other layer of Bigfoot. So uh, what I have done, I've recorded about 20 or 25 points of interest, um, audio 
things, you know, that, that see that the boat's going to be decked out with these brand new state of the art quality Bluetooth headphones. So, um, the, the tour guide and the docent who's live on the boat, I won't be there live on the boat, but the person who is when they're talking, their voice will be pumped into the earphones that all the participants, the customers are wearing. And then every once in a while, they'll say over here, uh, in a Multnomah falls, there was a sighting in 2000, blah, blah. Let's listen to what Cliff has to say about it. And then they're going to pipe me speaking directly to the customers into the earphones on recordings. Um, and we go over things like Native American lore of Sasquatches in the area, a number of fantastic sightings, some of which actually led to the Skamania County law um, that prohibits people from shooting Sasquatches. Um, I go over some vocalizations, and I um, B. Mills donated a bunch of her vocalizations to uh, me in the boat trip here. Um, we have some other stuff from David Ellis and some of the stuff from my own personal library um, playing for the customers and it's going to be a heck of a trip. I can't wait to see how it's going to turn out. But next Friday, I get to go check that out. Hook a brother up, Cliff. <laughs> well, come on up. Come on up. And I'm sh- I mean, they, the people at Spirit Boat Tours are big fans of the show. Um, I don't think it would be a big problem to get you on board. So Spend 400 bucks in gas to get an $80 boat ride? <laughs> if, that's, if that's what you're up for. Well, you're coming <laughs> up anyway in a couple months here for the expedition. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a great conversation, Bobs. I mean, another week down for Bigfoot and Beyond. Yeah, man, I'm I'm stuck. That was great. I got to learn some stuff, and I learned quite a few things from you today, Cliff. So thank you. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. I just love talking squatch in general, and I'm so excited about all these brand new discoveries and paleoanthropology. Um, and I think hopefully we, you and I, talking about these things can get other Bigfooters listening excited about this and go look into what's actually happening in science now. Because Bigfoot came from somewhere. There very likely are fossils out there. Who knows what kind of discoveries are going to come up in the next few years and start getting published that might shed more light on where Sasquatches actually came from. Exactly. And maybe UCLA will put some more effort into finding that minaret skull. Yeah, you know, that'd be a fun episode. We should get Moneymaker on yeah. here just talking about the minaret skull. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Well, for the people listening out there, if you have any questions or comments, please email us at bigfootandbeyondpodcast at gmail.com. Um, I know I've been taking questions on social media and emails, um, so we're going to be setting aside an episode where Bobo and I go through your questions and answer them to the best of our ability. So if you have anything else or suggestions for the show or something you'd like us to cover, please email us, bigfootandbeyondpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, Cliff, and anyone else listening to this? Until next time, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 